It is so good to see you uh, this morning, just three days before Christmas, because we're here to worship uh, Jesus today. And if you missed it, and you're new here, uh, we do have a welcome center out in the Commons area, and uh, there's some people out there that'll answer any question you might have about what a fellowship church is all about. And if you've been coming for some time and you want more information about how to become a member or how to get connected to a small group or community group um, or finding a place to plug in and serve, we've got a next step table out in the commons and some people there will help you with any questions like that. Again, if this is your first time, we are so glad you've chosen to worship with us today. One of the things that we would want you to know about us is that um, uh, most Sunday mornings when you attend here, we are teaching our way uh, studying our way through whole books of the Bible, and currently we're going through a series in the Gospel of John, but we've taken a break for a couple of weeks to focus on Christmas, and uh, next week we're going to uh, talk about Scripture and reading Scripture, and we've got a plan, a Bible reading plan for the new year. We do that every year uh, that we're going to introduce to you, and you'll hear more about that at the end of the service today. It's good that we pause at a time like this to remember the beauty of what the season means because the truth is all too often the wonder of Christ's coming uh, into the world is, is kind of overshadowed by a consumer-driven frenzy. And I, I think you know what I'm talking about. And then even when we do slow down, like on a morning like this, our thoughts about Christmas can easily become uh, more sentimental than scriptural. Now, don't get me wrong, I do like some of the sentimental aspects of Christmas. Uh, last weekend, Karen and I um, had the opportunity to go visit my son, Chad, and his wife, Catherine, in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. And while we were there, they took us downtown to the old Alabama theater. This is an old theater built back in 1927. It opened the day after Christmas, December the 26th, 1927. And it was a, a showcase for Paramount Films. And it was primarily used for 55 years as a movie palace. And you'll see why it's called a palace in just a minute. It was also used for a long time as the weekly venue for the Mickey Mouse Club. So if any of you... Uh, remember that some of us slightly do, but anyway, and um, so it ran for 55 years as a movie theater, and then uh, in 1987 the owners declared bankruptcy. It set for 11 years, kind of deteriorate, deteriorating, and um, and then in 1998 uh, the theater underwent a complete front to backdoor restoration with the new owners. And, and today it hosts many live events like concerts and theatrical productions as well as movies. Now, I wanna show you some pictures and I said it was a movie palace, so wait till you see this. It's absolutely gorgeous. Looks like Disney World. So here is a view from the outside. You're going, I'm underwhelmed and rightly so. But here's a view from the balcony. One of the many one of the three balconies. Here's uh, uh, another the balcony from another angle, and here's a, a picture from the side, and then here's a picture of the people. And you can see Karen and I. No, you're not. You can't. Um, but it's just amazing. And here is a picture of the lobby, and, and I'm telling you, it, 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 with all those Christmas decorations, it was very sentimental and nostalgic for me. We even sang. Uh, Christmas carols backed up by the mighty Wurlitzer organ, 
that came up out of the floor. So we've got like 2,500 people in this place, young, old, and everything in between singing to this wonderful old uh, pipe organ. They even introduced the movie that we saw that night with an old Mickey Mouse cartoon, just like in the old days, because when I was growing up, every time you went to the movie, you always had a cartoon before the movie. How many of you remember that? Okay, still a good number of us alive here today to remember that. And, uh, and, and the movie we saw, uh, my, uh, my favorite of all time, It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. And uh, uh, say it with me. Teacher says, every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. Okay, very good. All right. Atta boy, Clarence. Yeah, that's right. So anyway, uh, that, that, like I said, the 2,500-seat auditorium was packed with uh, young and old, and everybody was, they were just so into the movie, you know, like laughing out loud at this Andy Griffith kind of old kind of humor. And it was, it was, so, it was so neat, clapping. And, and it, it made, I, t- I told my son, I said, this made my Christmas this year. We're coming back next year for another movie. I mean, it was so good. Now, that is the sentimental part of Christmas. Made the sentimental part for me. Uh, so don't get me wrong, I like some of the nostalgic, sentimental parts of Christmas. But as followers of Jesus, uh, the sentiment of Christmas must never overshadow the Savior of Christmas. Amen? Uh, Jim mentioned last week that we're fond of the well-worn cliche, Jesus is the reason for the season, which is absolutely true. Absolutely true. Jesus is the reason for the season, but even even that idea in that cliche can can have a sentimental uh, flair if we stop there. And you see, the question is, why is he the reason for the season? Why is Jesus the reason for the season? And last week, Jim showed us um, lots of scriptures that give us lots of answers to that question. Like, uh, for example, the angel, speaking about Jesus coming, told Joseph that she, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. And consistent with that, Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Uh, Jesus said in another occasion, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So Jesus came to save us from our sins, to, to forgive us of our sins, to remove the guilt and the penalty of our sins and to save us from the coming judgment of God. And then Jesus talked about the salvation that he brings uh, a little bit differently in John 10, 10. He said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Uh, he said in John 12, 46, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. And there are many, many more statements like this that give us the big picture of why Jesus came or why the Father sent Jesus into the world. Now, last week, Jim did a great job unpacking what I would call the paradox of peace because at his coming, the angels said that Jesus would bring peace on earth. But then later, Jesus said, don't think that I have come to bring peace, but division. Now, whoa, that sounds like a contradiction. It sounds like something that an atheist would pick up and go, well, see there, that's one of those contradictions in the Bible. No, it's not. Uh, Jim did a great job showing us how these two seemingly contradictory statements are both true. 
And if you missed that message, I would encourage you to go back and watch it on our Fellowship Greenville app, or you can find it um, on YouTube, on YouTube uh, at, in, in our fellowship section there. Now, the I came to uh, verses uh, I read a moment ago, and again, there are many, many of them in Scripture, but the ones I chose to read all focus on Jesus saving us from our sins and giving us new, abundant, eternal life. Jesus is the reason for the season. But the question is, how did Jesus save us? How did he bring us God's salvation? How did he bring it to us? And the answer might surprise you. Listen to what the Apostle John said, not in the gospel we've been studying, but in a letter that we call 1 John. And I'm gonna be reading from 1 John 3, 1 to 10, and I'm gonna read out of an older translation of the New Testament, which people don't tend to read so much anymore, but this is from J.B. Phillips' translation. It's called the New Testament in Modern English. So I'm gonna read Phillips' translation because it, it just reads so well and is so understandable. If you try to follow along, you're gonna be lost because uh, it's not gonna follow your ESV. And by the way, a lot of you are always asking me, what version of the Bible do you preach from? And I always say the ESV, English Standard Version. They go, but what you're saying up there is not always the same as what I'm reading. And I say, I know. That is because if I don't like what the ESV says, I change it. So that, <laughs> now, now, now you know. Now you know. I, I, it doesn't have to be as hard as the translation sometimes makes it. But anyway, so I, as I read J.B. Phillips' translation, I'm going to make a few of my own tweaks as well. Okay? So now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pay attention to what the Apostle John says about what Jesus came to do to make us children of God, okay? First uh, John 3.10, Philip's translation with a few boy tweaks. All right, consider the incredible love that the Father has shown us in allowing us to be called children of God. And that's not just what we're called, but that's what we are. Our heredity on the Godward side is no mere figure of speech which explains why the world will no more recognize us than it recognized Christ. Oh, dear children of mine, forgive the affection of an old man. Have you really understood this? Here and now, we are God's children. We don't know what we'll become in the future. We only know that when Jesus returns, we will be made like him in every way, for we will see him as he really is. And everyone who has at heart a hope like that keeps himself pure, for he knows how pure Christ is. Now that said, everyone who commits sin breaks God's law, for that is what sin is, by definition of breaking of God's law. You know moreover that, okay, listen to this, Christ became man for the purpose of removing sin, and he himself was quite free from sin. The one who lives in Christ does not habitually sin, the habitual sinner has never seen or known him. You, my children, are younger than I am, and I don't want you to be taken in by any clever talker out there. The one who lives a consistently good, righteous life is a good person as surely as God is good. But the one whose life is habitually sinful is, a spirit, is spiritually a son of the devil. For the devil is behind all sin as he has always been. Now, the Son of God came to earth with the express purpose of destroying the works of the devil. The one who is really God's child does not practice sin, 
for God's nature is in him for good, and such a heredity is incapable of sin. So here we have a clear indication as to who the children of God are and who the children of, uh, of the devil are. The one who does not lead a godly life is no child of God, nor is the one who fails to love his brother. Now John is clearly concerned that his readers avoid living sinful lives, to avoid living like people who don't know God. And more than likely, he's responding to false teachers who denied that Jesus had come in the flesh. In other words, the false teachers have denied what we worship or what we celebrate at Christmas. They denied the incarnation, that God became uh, a man, took on human flesh in the person of Jesus. And these false teachers also denied the truth that belief in Christ ought to transform the way that we live. In other words, the false teachers were claiming that you could believe in Jesus, but you could just live any way you wanted. It doesn't matter how you live. And John contradicts that lie. He says that believing in Jesus results in a changed life, that faith in Christ uh, results in a radically different way of living. And he talked about this before back in chapter 2. When he said, uh, chapter 2, verse 6, he said, whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to live in the same way that Jesus lived. Point being, if you believe in Jesus, then you will desire to live like Jesus. Sounds more simple than it actually is, right? I mean, we know very well that we are all still very capable of living sinful lives. I mean, living like we want rather than what God wants for us. And that's why sin's power had to be broken. And that's the context for the Christmas, the big Christmas idea in this text. What do you mean big Christmas idea? Well, it's there in verse five and verse eight. Verse five, Jesus came for the express purpose of removing our sin. Our ESV Bible translation says, you know that he appeared to take away sin and in him there is no sin. So Jesus was born at Christmas to take away sins. We know that, we believe that, we saw that earlier in all of those I came to verses that I, I, I read. Uh, but the question is, how does John say that Jesus accomplished the taking away of sins? Verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason Jesus came to earth, the reason the Father sent his Son into this world the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And in one sense, verse five and verse eight are really two ways of saying the same thing. First, Jesus came to take away sins. Second, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. The reason I say that they're the same thing is because Satan works our sins. His works are sins. The works of the devil are sins. So the reason that Jesus came that first Christmas was to destroy the works of the devil. And the devil's works are accomplished through sin and all of the effects of sin in our lives and in our world. So according to John the Apostle, the reason for the season is Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Now... Karen and I have received a lot of Christmas cards and a lot of them from you. Uh, thank you very much. But so far, not a single Christmas card 
has 1 John 3, 8 plastered on it. And I know this reason for the season that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. I know that 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 doesn't give you those warm, holiday, sentimental chestnuts roasting on an open fire kind of Christmas feeling inside. I get that. I get that. But, 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 But until we realize that there's something in the world and something in us that needs to be destroyed, we will miss the true meaning of Christmas. And so uh, last week's, J- Jim's big idea was Jesus brings peace through division. This week, my big idea is Jesus saves through destruction. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> Jesus saves by destroying. In other words, there are things wrong in this world and things wrong in our hearts that need to be destroyed. Jesus said it this way in another place in Luke chapter five. He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, the only people who understand Christmas and embrace Christmas for what it truly is are people who know they're sick, and they desperately want their sickness destroyed. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil out there and in here, and that is good news of great joy, which is for all people. Think about it. We're being told that behind everything that's wrong with the world stands the devil. Behind all the brokenness in this world, there's a devil hell-bent on preventing God's good purpose of winning back his creation from coming to pass. Or let me say it this way. Everything that's wrong with this world is the work of the devil. Everything wrong with this world is devil-inspired. Now, to be sure, of course, it's people who carry out the work. It's people who carry out the work. But But the accuser of God's people, the Satan, the serpent of old, the dragon in Revelation 12, he's behind it all. And Jesus came to destroy it all. He came to destroy it all. Okay, so what are the works of the devil? Again, They are uh, our sins and the effects of sin in our world and in our lives. Lying, dishonesty, deceit, pride, gossip, slander, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, drunkenness, arrogance, racism, selfishness, abuse, envy, power-grabbing violence, murder, war, injustice, sexual immorality, human trafficking, distorting God's design for male and female, the taking of human life, rebellion against God, apathy towards God, refusing to acknowledge the truth of God, all disease, all sickness, and of course the big one, death. Now, do you think that there would be peace on earth if all of that was destroyed? Well, of course there would be. Oh, by the way, here's how the author of Hebrews talked about death with this big idea in mind. He said, he said, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. I mean, isn't that good? That may be one of the best Christmas passages ever. I might preach on that next Christmas. The Son of God came to share 
in our humanity so that by his death he would break the power of the devil, the power of sin in our life, and set us free from our sins and the fear of death. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Jesus came to destroy all the works of the devil that are evident in our lives and in the world around us in order to restore us and this world to what God has always wanted from the very beginning, and that is peace on earth, peace between God and people and peace between people and peoples. In fact, the whole thing started way back at the beginning of time, way back at the beginning of our Bible in the book of Genesis. You see, the Hebrew scriptures tell us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created all living things, fish, birds, insects, plants, trees, fungus, I mean, the whole thing. And there was beauty, and there was order, and there was shalom, wholeness, as Jim talked about last week. There was peace. But the crown of God's creation was humans made in his very own image, in his very own likeness. And humans were commissioned to rule over this beautiful world on God's behalf, harnessing its potential and creating even more beauty and order. And God looked at the world that he had made and he said, this is good. This is very, very good. And God gave the people that he created, though, a choice in the form of a fruit tree. So humans could partner with God and live free by trusting his knowledge of what's good and what's evil, or they could seize power and define good and evil on their own apart from God, which God warned would kill them. And as they stood before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they heard the voice of a dark, mysterious creature who took the form of a serpent. And the serpent said, look, my paraphrase, this is an easy choice. Come on, this is an easy, just take it. Just, just eat the fruit and you'll be like God. You'll have the power and the freedom to rule the world on your terms. And uh, the saddest moment in all of history, they listened to the voice of the serpent. Rather than the voice of God, they took the fruit and as a result, they became suspicious and self-protective, which led to fractured relationships, which led to violence and injustice and oppression and violent uh, power grabs and ultimately, ultimately a whole world that has redefined evil as good. Again, everything wrong and broken in this world goes back to this moment, goes back to the work of the devil. The entire human race is guilty of sin, guilty of high treason against the rightful ruler of this world. The original sin was committed by our original parents, but we've all been infected. We all have the disease. We all have the sickness. We all bear the same guilt. The reality of our situation is so clear that even the philosopher Michael Roos has written, with respect to the main claims of Christianity, I'm pretty atheistic. I prefer the term skeptic to describe my position, though. But I am an ardent evolutionist. And yet, surprisingly, Roos, this philosopher, is also, he ardently defends the biblical doctrine of original sin. Roos argues, I think Christianity, though, is spot on about original sin. I mean, how could one think otherwise? When the world's most civilized and advanced people 
the people of Beethoven and Goethe and Kant embraced that slimeball Hitler and participated in the Holocaust. I think St. Paul and the great Christian philosophers had real insights into sin and freedom and responsibility, and I want to build on this rather than turn from it. <laughs> Will wonders ever see? I mean, an atheist who believes in the doctrine of, the, of original sin. So yes, in Adam, we all sin. In Adam, we all die. And that's, that's bad news. That's really, really bad news. But... In the middle of all this bad news, there's a hint of hope. God doesn't just throw up his hands and say, say to the heavenly host, well, that didn't work out, did it? Okay, back, we'll have to do another experiment. No, God didn't give up on the world he created. God didn't give up on us. So where's the hope? Well, it's right there in the story of the fall. It's right there in Genesis 3. It's tucked in God's pronouncement of a curse on the serpent for his devilish work the devilish work that he accomplished. Genesis 3, 15. God is speaking to the serpent, who we know from later scripture is the devil, and God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, that's the ESV version, and this is the way that I would paraphrase it. I would say, God told the serpent... I'm declaring war between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. In other words, one day a savior will come to destroy the works of the devil. Now, the Bible geeks call this the proto-evangelium. And that's two Greek words, proto, that means first, and evangelium, that means good news or gospel. So together, pro, proto-evangelium uh, of, of Genesis 3.15 is the first mention of the good news of salvation in the Bible. And to my thinking, with the exception of John 3.16, which we had on the screen earlier this morning, there's no verse in the Bible that's more crucial and definitive to understanding the storyline of the Bible in Genesis 3.15, because from this verse runs the storyline of the war between the children of God the, in, the line of the prom, in the line of promise and the children of the serpent. From this verse comes the expectation of a savior, a future descendant of the woman whom God promises will come to crush the head of the serpent, to destroy the works of the devil, to reverse the curse that rests on all of creation and all of humanity and to restore all of God's creation to the beauty and order of, of the shalom of Eden that we see in the last couple of chapters of the book of Revelation. A savior, that savior, our savior has come. His name is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, born of Mary, daughter of Eve, born in Bethlehem, born in fulfillment of Jewish prophecy, born to die to set us free from sin in all, its form, in all of its forms. And Jesus could be the sacrifice for our sins because as John, 1 John 3, 5 says, in him there is no sin. Jesus lived a perfect life. At the cross, yes, the, uh, the devil bruised his heel, but he willingly died 
in our place, and thereby he crushed the serpent's head. He satisfied God's rightful wrath for our sins. He removed the curse from us by taking the curse on himself, Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, and he removed the curse from us, and he removed the basis, therefore, of Satan's accusations against us. John Piper talks about this. He says, when Christ died for our sins, Satan was disarmed and defeated. The one eternally destructive weapon that he had stripped from his hands, namely, was his accusation before God that we are guilty of sin and should perish with him. When Christ died on the cross, that accusation was nullified so that all who trust all those who entrust themselves to Christ will never perish. Satan cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that is the reason for Christmas. Jesus came to deal with our greatest problem, our sin and our guilt, and he came to destroy the mortal enemy of our souls, the devil and all of his works. So, let's talk about what this means. First of all, when you entrust yourself to Jesus, God empowers you to live a changed life. When you entrust yourself to Jesus, God empowers you to live a changed life. Now, let's go back to the larger context of 1 John 3, all 10 verses. John tells us that when you put your faith and trust in Christ, when Jesus comes into your life, you're no longer stuck in sin. You're no longer a slave to sin. Uh, sin no longer has power over you, as we like to sing around here. Now, obviously, that, 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 that doesn't mean that you will never sin again. I mean, there's no, no perfect people here this morning, right? I mean, any, anybody perfect today? You know, like last service, Mike Hawkins had his hand halfway up. Of course, Jane, Jane knows better, you know, so... Uh, anyway, but what, what this means is that Jesus changes us so that we're no longer content to go on sinning. We're no longer content when we sin. The people who are most miserable in their sin are Christians who know better, or they should be. But when, by faith in Jesus, God removes the guilt of your sin, he places his spirit inside of you. You get divine DNA. His spirit comes to dwell in, inside of you, and, and you become a completely different person, spiritually speaking, way down inside. And, and with that change, God begins changing you. And, and so we used to walk a path away from God. But when Jesus comes into our life, when his spirit comes into our life, we turn around and we start going in the opposite direction. We start moving towards God. The path only goes this way. And all that John is saying in all these verses about the one who, who, um, who abides in Christ does not habitually sin, what he's saying is, is because you've got this divine DNA, because you've got the Holy Spirit, you can't go both directions at the same time. You're either going this way, away from God. This is the way it is with every decision, every temptation that you face. You're either going towards God or you're going away from God. And he's just saying, those who abide in Jesus will go this way. Now, of course, yeah, we're going this way, and sometimes we look back and go, well, that does look pretty good over there, and we, start, we go back this way. But 
Holy Spirit starts to speak to us, we, and then what do we do? We repent, what mean, which means we turn around and we go back this way. That's one of the most simple ways of thinking about what it means to walk with Christ. You're always either going towards God or you're walking away from God. That's all that he's saying here. And if you're walking towards God, you don't want to sin. You don't want to, you, you don't want to turn from God and go in the opposite uh, direction. The reason is because God gives you new desires. That's part of the change. He gives us new desires, and those new desires are now possible because Jesus came to destroy the old desires, which were the works of the devil in your life, the works of sin and the effects of sin in your life. And, and, that, and that is just great Christmas news. God begins to change us from the inside out. God empowers you. When you entrust yourself to Jesus, God empowers you to live a changed life because as John tells us in the next chapter, chapter four, verse four, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You see, that's how it works. And I wanna encourage you, if you haven't already come to Jesus and put your faith in him, I wanna encourage you to do that today. I mean, simply tell God you wanna change direction. You're going this way. You've lived your life, maybe not in rebellion, but maybe just apathetic, like God has not been a part. You've just kind of been going your way. Tell God you want Christmas to be the turning around point in your life, and that you're trusting Christ to forgive your sins and to give you the life that he died uh, to make possible for you. And, and here's the deal. It's not, that, it's not that you're turning around to try to do more and, and live better and try harder to do better. No, 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 no. You, you turn around, you turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus and you're asking him to forgive your sin and give you his life and a whole set of new desires. This is the way that it works and I tell you, if you do that today, he'll put his spirit inside you and he'll begin to make those changes in your life that, that many of you if God has drawn you to himself right now, you know that there's changes that need to be made. And if you want to talk more about that, we've got a prayer team uh, down in the front in Auditorium 2. It's over on the left side, and if you look over and don't see it, it's on the other left. But, um, <laughs> but uh, there's some people that'll be there and they can talk with you after the service. But trusting Christ, when you entrust yourself to him, you begin to walk in a whole new direction. And that direction is possible because Jesus destroyed the works of the one who's made it impossible up until the time he puts the spirit into you. All right, second, you can know that Jesus, here it is, when you entrust yourself to Christ, you can know that Jesus is restoring all things, that Jesus is reversing the curse. Now think about this. The invasion to kill Osama bin Laden, and they did kill him, but that couldn't undo everything that he had done because there's still terrorists that trace their line back to him. There's still terrorists in our world today. Evil still continues today. And in some ways, the same is true of Jesus' victory over the devil. The serpent's head has been crushed, but the serpent isn't dead yet. He, we, we still see his works in all of its malignant effects all around us. But if you take a closer look, at the cross, Jesus not only defeated Satan, but he began to undo all of his works. 
How did he begin to undo all of his works? He began when he, he, when he drew you to himself and saved you. He is undoing the works of the devil in the world today through his church. Through his church. On um, June 6, 1944, that's a day that's known as D-Day. It's the day that the Allies established a beachhead uh, on the European mainland in Normandy, France. It's really the day, though, that the, that the Allies won the war, at least in principle. But the victory wasn't fully realized until VE Day, which was Victory in Europe Day. And that came 11 months later, May 8, 1945. And in some way, the same thing is true of Jesus' head-crushing defeat over the devil. A good friend of mine is fond of, of, of saying, Christmas marks the day when the invasion began. Good Friday marks the day when Jesus engaged Satan in full-scale war. Easter Sunday marks the complete victory of Jesus over the devil, and his return will mark VE Day, when the victory will be fully realized. Isn't that good? And as the quote says, and that day, everything sad will become untrue. We live in between. The victory has been won but we're still waiting for the victory to be fully realized. But make no mistake about it, Jesus is restoring all things. Everything broken in your life can and will ultimately be restored by Jesus. And that is what we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. Jesus is the Christmas is the celebration of the arrival of the invading force that came with a mission to destroy our greatest enemy. And because Jesus came, we can be changed. And we can know with certainty that he's restoring all things. That's the reason for the season. So we should celebrate it. I mean, and let's, let's, just, let's do that. I mean, let's live in the certainty that the victory has been won. Let's trust him, and most of all, let's worship him with all of our hearts and minds and body and soul and strength. Amen? Uh, oh, uh, one more thing. Again, thank you for all your Christmas cards. Uh, you know, it would cost way too much for Karen and I to send each and every one of you a card this year, well, really, any year for that matter. But... Um, but I, I thought this would be a great occasion that I could just put my Christmas card up on, this, on the screen for you. So this is my Boyd Mark Christmas card to all of you. Jesus is the reason for the season. The reason the Son of God appeared was destroy the works of the devil. What, what do you think? I th <laughs> it is different. So Merry Christmas. Joy to the world. Jesus has come to reverse the curse. As far as the curse is found, Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil. He's crushed the devil under his foot. Now listen to this. Jesus has crushed the devil under his foot. And I say with the blessing of St. Paul, in Romans chapter 16, he says, 
the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Under your feet. May the God of all grace be with you in the name of Jesus. Amen.